Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? You may be seated. There's a mineral called iron pyrite. I don't know if any of you ever heard of it. It's a shiny mineral, and it's composed of iron disulfide. The, the reason why that's significant is that it, it looks like real gold. And it was called fool's gold in the 1800s. During the gold rush, there would be some miners who would find it and think, of course, that they had hit, hit it rich. They made it big. They found gold. But alas, one thing you know about fool's gold is it's abundant and it's worthless. It looks nice. It looks beautiful but it has no value at all. And that's essentially sort of the idea that Paul has here when it comes to this idea of the gospel and a false gospel. A false gospel, it looks exactly very similar to the real gospel, so much so that you can be quite easily fooled by it. It looks valuable, but in the end, what is beautiful is actually a sham and the thing about something that is truly false and deceptive is that the closer it looks like it's real, but without being real, is why it is most deceptive, disruptive, and evil. For the Galatians, it's sort of the reason why Paul uses such strong language here. I mean, he calls them fools, you foolish Galatians. And they're foolish because they believe in something that looks so good and enticing, but is so lacking. Looks like the precious gospel, but it is not. And I think for all of us, it's important that we learn the lessons of what the Galatians are going through, what Paul is leading them to, so that we don't make the same mistake that the Galatians make. So because of this, I'd like to look at exactly what Paul describes as qualities of such a fool and hopefully the solution that we find to this folly. The qualities of this fool, this type of fool comes in this whole text in verses one through five. Um, by calling the Galatians foolish, Paul's not making a reference to their intellect or their IQ. They're not dumb, but you can't get away from the fact that these are very strong words that Paul uses. He uses the same word in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Essentially, what Paul's saying is that they were living as though uh, God was 
center in their lives, but in actuality, they didn't. They didn't actually live that out. Paul takes it a step further by telling them not only are they fools, but they're acting as though they're bewitched. They're, they've been cast under a spell. Some magical spell or charm is affecting them. And it's such a loaded charge because in, in the New Testament, to be under that type of spell was to be under Satan's power. I mean, that's how stark these words are that Paul is using, to be under his influence, Satan's influence. And if you can recall back to our study in Ephesians, you can remember perhaps that Satan is the most crafty of all animals, of beasts in the garden. He is smarter, more intelligent, more disruptive than any other being in this whole world. Paul's saying that his power is so great that he can even make it seem like you're obeying God while not obeying him. That's really crafty. And that's why this false gospel is so deadly and so dangerous because it looks like you're actually worshiping Jesus when you're not. Martin Luther describes this well, this idea, and he says this, by this spiritual witchcraft, that old snake bewitches not our senses, but our minds with false and wicked opinions. And these opinions are taken to be true and godly by people who are bewitched. So great is this sorcerer's malice and his desire to harm that he deceives not only people who are proud and complacent, but even those who profess true Christianity. To tell the truth, he sometimes attacks me so fiercely and oppresses me with such heavy thoughts that he utterly obscures my Savior, Christ, from my sight. There is not one of us who is not often bewitched by false ideas. That is, we all fear, trust, or rejoice when we should not, and we sometimes think other than we should about God, Christ, faith, our vocation, and so on. Wow, those are really stunning words if you consider what Martin Luther is saying. He himself has been obscured from Christ. He has a hard time seeing Jesus in his life. In some sense, that's almost encouraging to us because who amongst us has also not experienced what Martin Luther has experienced here? That we too sometimes feel like we've been cast under a spell, bewitched, feeling as though we could never break hold of sin and its power over us. So we must never think that we're beyond Satan's schemes. You don't graduate from being tempted by Satan. If Jesus could be tempted by Satan, so too we can. It doesn't mean, though, that he controls us, or there's no escape from his schemes. But he does incite. He does cause us to doubt and to fear and to grow anxious and to become weary and bored. And as even Luther says, he utterly obscures my Savior, Christ, from my sight. The difference between someone who is wise and someone who is a fool is a fool says, no, this doesn't happen. Or it doesn't fight, just lets it happen, succumbs to it. A wise person knows this happens and battles, recognizes that they need to press forward and even more so cling to the cross. Fools become lazy, lazy in the spiritual fight. Fools become lazy in prayer. Fools don't contend with the enemy 
through scripture. They don't study God's word. They don't consider it at all. But most of all, we see these three terrible qualities that Paul warns against in this text. First, fools forget the gospel. Let's go back to verses one through three and read that again. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Again, look at what he's doing. He's repeating that idea of you're foolish, you're a fool. And why are you a fool? You're forgetting, you're forgetting Christ. Satan's greatest effort is to minimize, distort, and confuse the cross of Christ and its impact in your life. That's what he's primarily going to focus on. And that's what Satan has done. He's done this when he, along with the Galatians, uh, they, they forget the cross. And they uplift the law, righteous efforts, their own righteousness over the work of Christ and the cross of Christ. And somehow, we still can't accept the idea that it's only Jesus. There's nothing that we do that merits our salvation, our righteousness, our rightness before God. It's only Christ. And that's all we have is Christ alone. But within us, there, there's always this sort of eating away thought of, there has to be a little bit of me has to be somewhat of my effort. If I do something that God is going to be happy with me, God is going to be pleased with me. It can't be I am crucified. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I have to prove myself before God and others or else what do I have? See, that's always deep in our souls and that comes out in many different ways. We have to remember that, no, all we have is Christ. When we were first constructing this sanctuary, one of the things that we wanted to do is to have a cross at the center. I'm gonna move this away so that everyone can see it clearly. Um, this cross, you know, uh, one of our elders, Rob Sharp, he made this cross. And our, our initial desire for this cross was that it would be as ugly as we possibly could make it. Now, I don't know if you think of it as ugly or not, an old rugged cross. But if, if we could have really made it to be the most of what it could be is that we would have taken two trees and put it together and it would have been something that you would look at and go, that is an ugly cross. But one of the things that Rob and I would often talk about is we wanted to put in nails and we wanted to, actually, we wanted to stain it with blood. <laughs> and uh, we were talking about it, and we'd say, should we really do it? Should we stain it with this dark crimson blood? And people would say, no, no, don't do that. That's too scary. That's too frightening. Kids are going to be scared by that. But we wanted to do that because we didn't want to forget what Jesus has done in this place. As long as this building stands, and it's called Wellspring Church, we wanted you to come in and say, that thing stands out, out the most. And the blood that was shed there, why is it so stark? Maybe we should, Rob, 
put the blood back on. <laughs> um, it's, why is it so, why does it stand there? It is at the center of this room. We want you to look at this cross. We don't want to ever forget the gospel in this place because it's too easy to forget the gospel. You know, we put, we do a lot. Um, for those of you who are watching, we want this broadcast because most of you are away. We're focusing, we're, we've, we're, we've worked hard to make this broadcast work. And so we do a lot of different things with sound and technology and all these things. But, and it's a big but, it has to be about the cross, not about the technology or how comfortable the chairs are or whether the, you know, the ceiling is nice or... It's so easy to lose sight of what matters the most. And even as we're constructing this building, that's not just regarding the building, that's about our families. What matters the most? How we're raising our children, what type of education they're getting, what type of um, extracurricular activities. The, the list is endless about my, our career paths. You know, are, do we ha are we on the right path? Are we connected to the right people? Do we have the right uh, resumes all set up. You can see how easily we get distracted from the fact that God has saved us, not because of a building, a career, a family, education, wealth, but Christ and Christ alone. And we oft, often say this, but 10,000 years from today, what one of those things will last? Really? Not even our physical body, the way that it looks now, will matter, or your clothing, whether you have a defect, even something that should happen, perhaps an injury, a, a really debilitating injury that makes you look disfigured. Not even that will last 10,000 years from today. What will last is the cross. And so you could see why fools forget the gospel and only focus on what is in the moment. And Paul is saying, you're foolish. Who's bewitched you, Galatians? Who's bewitched you, Wellspring? Why have you succumbed to this? You started with the Spirit, not with the law, but he pointed you to Jesus. So then why are you constantly going back to, no, it's got to be me. It's my work, my effort, my wealth, my career, my family, all that it's not you, Jesus. When we see the cross, I hope you do see what we shared last week in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. That is an ongoing moment-by-moment -moment battle of your heart. And to be crucified is painful. Death is painful. To die to yourself is painful. It's not easy to lose your old self. A bone marrow transplant is terribly painful to those who need it. But when it works, they're transformed. They're made new, clean, whole. When we die to our sinful self, our self loves family. When you follow Jesus and he says, deny yourself, take up the cross daily and follow me. When you give up your family, your friendships, your wealth, your career, your education, uh, all those things that you think it's all about me, to give up that, it's not easy. And the way you know you've given it up is if you've gone through pain regarding the giving 
a process of it. it we all have to give it up. I said this uh, numerous times. Fasting is a great way to know whether you have truly understood the pain of giving something up. Fast giving up sports, TV, social media, the internet, uh, news, food. The reason why we fast food is because while you're hungry, it reminds you, oh yeah, you know what? Nothing else matters but me eating. I just want to eat. I don't care about anything else. I don't even care about my job. I don't care about my family. I just want to eat. That reminds you of, wow, that pain shows me that actually I need to die to a lot of things still. And I am not willing to give those up yet. We have to be able to see Christ. And to see him is to yield which the rich young ruler could not do. But there was someone who could. His name was another rich person. His name was Zacchaeus. Many of you know the story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man, <laughs> you know, who climbed that sycamore tree. We know in Luke chapter 19, verses 9 through 10, when he said, Jesus, I'm going to give away everything. And I'm going I'm to pay back fourfold what I've cheated. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Salvation has come to this house. When we are willing to yield of everything, salvation comes. So let us not forget the gospel and be foolish. Secondly, let us not be foolish by forgetting the Holy Spirit in verses 1 through 5. As we see again, just as terrible as it is for Christians to forget the gospel is to forget the Spirit. Let me ask this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? It's one thing to forget the gospel. It's another thing to forget the Holy Spirit who is God himself. And it's the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes to see Jesus as Savior. Without the Holy Spirit, we don't ever trust in Christ. Without the Holy Spirit, we don't ever understand that actually to lose your life is to save it. And so many of us, perhaps some of you, you've known about Jesus your whole life. Maybe you've been baptized. Maybe you've read the whole Bible. Maybe you have lived morally. But you need to consider that maybe in that process you think, in order to live a good life, I need to just follow the moral commands of Christianity. But that's not enough. Jesus crucified doesn't sink into your soul. And then when that happens, and we have just simply decided following Jesus morally, but not laying down your life, that rejects the Holy Spirit. And Paul is saying, essentially, a fool does that. That's a very strong word, I know. But it's something that you must realize is the definition of a fool in the Bible. Someone who lives as though they know God, but in actuality, they don't. And so, this is, it, it really falls on the idea that for all of us who have trusted in Christ, and have said, I w I'm crucified with Christ. I have been, I am being. 
and I know I have to die to that, anything that is me, when we see the cross, it is so precious to us, and we embrace it. In the 19th century, during um, just in the midst of slavery, really, for many of the black Africans that had come from and been taken under such horrific situations, coming over the Middle Passage, being torn apart from their families. And now they're brought in and working under truly horrific conditions in the cotton fields. So many of them had become Christians and turned to Christ. And some of the songs that they constructed were so tremendous. We sing numbers of them today. And there's one that, to me, is always haunting, actually, because I sort of imagine these African slaves working in these cotton fields, being torn apart from their families, and being forced against their will with severe physical pain. What did they have? Surely they did not have the world's pleasures. You know, what they had was they remembered that their Savior also felt the harsh whip. They felt, he felt the sufferings that this world brought. And they knew that th their only hope was Christ and Christ alone. So they constructed a, an old African slave hymn called, Were You There? when they crucify my Lord. I mean, that song is so haunting to me because I just keep that in my mind. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble. Tremble. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to the cross? Were you there when they nailed him to the cross? And sometimes it causes me to tremble. You know, if the cross doesn't cause you to tremble, with awe, with wonder, with thankfulness and gratitude, if it moves you not at all, then you have to really ask, Holy Spirit, have you come into my life? Because it is the Holy Spirit, the person of the third person of the triune Godhead, who actually causes your heart to stir when you consider Christ on that cross. And he is the one that actually causes you sometimes to physically shake, sometimes to weep, sometimes to mourn, sometimes to reflect, sometimes to stand in awe and to say, oh God, why would you do such a thing for me? Or as John Newton writes, a wretch like me. The Holy Spirit grabs hold of you. He shows you Jesus on that cross. And he helps you to realize that your life needs to change. So you don't change because of willpower or some sudden urge to want to follow Jesus. No, you change because the Holy Spirit does a new work. He causes you to die. The death that Christ died, you are crucified with Christ. You no longer live. Christ lives in you. And then he does the transformative work of changing you by constantly bringing you back to Christ's work and then bringing you back out again and say, I need to live anew. I can't live the way that I have. Do you see then why in this third way, fools, they rely on the law, why you're so foolish when we rely on the law? Look at verses four and five. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? 
Paul's saying, how could you think, even though you know that it is Christ alone by which you can go forth and live the Christian life, why do you constantly go back to the law? Why do you constantly think that I need to do this and then God's really happy with me? Then God's pleased with me. Then God's satisfied with me. If I attend church, if I read the Bible, if I pray, I'm bringing all these really wonderful blessings, going to missions, serving in Goma, doing whatever it is. If all those things, again, go back to 1 Corinthians 13. If you can surrender your body to the flames but have not the love of Christ transform you, then you gain nothing. That's why so many missionaries and pastors leave the mission field and the ministry and even feel upset because God hasn't blessed them. Well, there's a reason why that that happens is because there's a distortion. There's a misunderstanding of the motivation of why we do what we do. We never do it because God is suddenly going to take my work and be happy with me. No, I do it because solely because I have Christ. And this is my heart is when I minister, when I pastor, when I go into the field, when I uh, read scripture, I don't go into it thinking, God, I hope you bless me today. Rather, it's because you have shown me your son, because you have saved me, not because of righteous things, but because of your great mercy, that's why I do what I do. And anything that I face in this world, even difficulties and hardships and trials, I should expect that. Of course that comes with uh, following Christ on a cross. And then I go back and if I'm discouraged, I go back to that cross and I remember, oh yeah, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. And it, again, refuels me and it gives me hope and delight in him. Focus on the law and you will be a fool. The Holy Spirit doesn't point you to the law as the means by which you're saved and you're righteous. The Holy Spirit points you always to Christ. It's we who go back to the law. But yet we still do it. It has to be something that I achieve. Think about how tragically you or your loved ones, by your willpower, try to defeat sin. That's how you know someone is going and relying on the law. You see someone who is wearied, burdened, tired, joyless. The joyless Christian and the wearied Christian is usually the person who's going back to the law to solve their life, their life's problems, to be a good Christian. Oh, I, if, in order to not be an alcoholic or in order to not be angry or in order to not be fearful, I have to fight harder. I'm going to read the Bible more. I'm going to pray more. Now, again, you think, that sounds, though, right, doesn't it? I mean, shouldn't you pray more in order to stop being anxious? Shouldn't you read the Bible more? The Bible even says that. Yes, but the direction upon which that flows out is critical. If it's, I need to read the Bible more and pray more so that I am not more anxious, it's, again, my effort. I have to do this, read the Bible, and we go and do it, and we say, it doesn't work. I'm still angry. I'm still anxious. It doesn't work. And then we just go back to feeling anxious and angry. We say, oh, well, God doesn't... See, we've already made God into, put him into a box and say, you have to work in accordance with my efforts, 
the law, my righteousness. But instead, it's I surrender my life, O Lord. I am dying because you died, and I'm going to die and go into the depths with you. I realize that I am absolutely helpless, but Christ, it's all at the cross. You died so that I don't have to die. Ultimately, I can live. And in that is the power and the fuel by which I then pray, read scripture through that lens. So the direction is so critical. It's not first to pray and read the Bible. It's first to Christ. And then out of that fuels scripture. And when I struggle, I repent, go back to the cross, and then go back out again. And it's this constant sort of reflushing of our souls. It's the oil change, you might say, that keeps the engine going. And, and it's Christ doing, by the Spirit, doing all that work. Do not be discouraged, though, when we face these things. Because here's the thing, is that Jesus told us in Matthew 5, the law does not change your heart. The Pharisees believed that. They said, well, we don't commit adultery. We don't murder people. And Jesus said, no, you do. You do it in your heart. And you think that just by following the text, you're not actually sinning against God? Well, you are. The law won't stop that because when you're angry, you actually murder. When you lust, you commit adultery. And that you cannot stop by the law. So, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to realize that just like the Pharisees, we have this law-keeping righteousness. It keeps us from seeing the crucified Christ. And every time we say we know we have some besetting sin, we're unforgiving, we're anger, uh, angry, we have a lustful heart, and we say, We've, I've tried these books, these discipleship programs, this software, accountability partners, and I just can't stop. Might I propose that perhaps we're still relying on the law as our answer to these things? Look again at Paul's answer to this person. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Are you being perfected? Are you trying to actually conquer these things by your willpower and your work and what you do and your effort and your intelligence and your plans and your strategies? Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the work, does the father who gives the spirit to work miracles among you, does he do it by the law or by hearing with faith? The greatest miracle ever was to save you from eternal damnation by the cross of Christ. God became man. He died. He rose again. Do you really think now that the best way to go about living as a Christian is to do so by your own efforts? Why would God go to this infinitely most difficult path of saving you and then to actually keep you in faith? The answer is now you do it all on your own. That just doesn't make sense, even logically. Wouldn't it make sense that the same power that God used to save you from hell forever is going to be the same power that also keeps you and calls you to himself and calls you to be a son and daughter? I think we think of the Israelites too harshly when we think of them. They're crossing, they're running from and escaping the Egyptians. They see the Red Sea. 
It just seems impossible. An impossible situation to be saved. They have enemies behind and a sea in front of them. And then God does this great work. He parts the sea. They cross on dry land. And then as they finally cross over, we all, most of us know the story. The, the waters come and rush over the Egyptians. They all die, right? And they're on the land. And we think, man, forever, they're going to just be forever changed. They're never going to complain about anything. But what do we know? They always complain. But you say, to your, you say as you read that story, that's so ridiculous. They saw this tremendous miracle, and now they're complaining about water and food. Of course God is, God is going to take care of them. Of course he is. He already did this tremendous miracle. How could, they, how could they believe that? My friends, look at your own heart. Isn't that exactly what we do? God saved us by a, tr- a far greater miracle than the parting of the Red Sea. He saved us from sin and death forever with his own son. And yet, right afterwards, what do we do? We forget him. We complain about food and water. We complain about, oh, I want to go back to Egypt. Look at what I used to have. Boy, that, the people in this world, they get to enjoy so much more than me as a Christian because my life... It, I have have all these do's and don'ts as a Christian. I can't go to parties. I can't drink like this. I mean, is that really what we're settling for? So do not laugh or maybe in our own hearts sort of mock the Israelites, but rather to say, wow, I'm just like that. What is this answer? What's the answer to all this foolishness? The answer is, We have to remember the gospel. We have to look at Christ. We have to believe in Jesus as Savior, and we have to live as though we believe in Jesus as Savior. I want to give you an example of such a person. His name was Stephen. He's in Acts. He's one of the deacons. He was executed. He was martyred. You know, many of you might know the story says that when he was being stoned to death, he looked to heaven and said, I see heaven opened, and I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. The interesting thing about that is that in most places in the New Testament, whenever it talks about Jesus at the right hand of God, he's always sitting at the right hand of God. And the reason why he's sitting is because sitting at the right hand of God was often seen as a symbol of authority. So God had given, the Father had given the Son authority to to actually judge the world. So why in this instance where Stephen is just about to die, he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God? And it's, it's thought that because in that instance, that picture is Jesus interceding. He's mediating. He's the high priest, and he's mediating for Stephen. And when Stephen says, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, and his face is like the face of an angel, And as they're stoning him, he falls asleep saying, Father, forgive them. Do not hold this to their account. Why did Stephen say that last part? Don't hold this to their account. Was he just trying to imitate Jesus on the cross? He thought, oh, you know, Jesus, he said, forgive them for they did not know what they're doing. So as I'm going to die, I'm going to say the exact same thing. You know, sort of WWJD, what would Jesus do? And uh, let's do that. You know, when you're facing these sharp, 
I don't know if any of you, this is a common occurrence amongst kids, right? You have a rock fight. Anyone ever have a rock fight as a kid? We want, anyone in this? How about in our room? Two? Get hit by a rock? Two or three? Yeah, I don't know. You never really understand it until you get hit by a rock. Then you realize, oh yeah, you shouldn't have a rock fight. Well, anyway, you get hit by a rock, it is painful. One rock, one small stone. Imagine everyone trying to kill you with those rocks. And we're not talking small stones, probably like a full-on rock, and they're throwing it at you. And it's piercing and tearing away your skin and breaking bones, smashing you into different places. I tell you, you're not in those moments trying to analyze, okay, what would Jesus do? He's going to say this. I think I'm going to say it. Or let me say the best let me be the nicest person at this time. You're not thinking that. You know, there's a lot of chemical reactions due to pain that's going on that sometimes you just can't think straight. So what Stephen is saying is what he really sees, what is happening. And he's not saying, I have to forgive them. I'm a Christian. I have to forgive them. It's just not what's happening. You know, that's sort of how we think it is to be a Christian. Oh, I have to be a good person. I can't curse. I can't steal. I can't. And, oh, I did it, and I feel so bad. And then, God, do you really love me? And we go through this cycle over and over again. But look at Stephen's story. He says something that is so stunning. I love the way how Tim Keller describes Stephen's response. He says this. He had Jesus Christ portrayed graphically to him. I don't think he looked because he saw Christ. I think he saw Christ because he looked. I don't think he looked to heaven because he saw Jesus. I think he saw Jesus because he looked to heaven. What he did was he realized that even though these people down here were condemning him, in the only court that mattered, he was beautiful. He was acquitted. He was pardoned. He was righteous. What he was doing is he is saying, I don't need this if I have this. His heart was transformed. It was picked up. It was taken. And that is what you have to do. Of course you have to try. Of course you have to stop doing the bad things. But first you have to go underneath, Paul says, or else you'll just be back into relying on the law. In other words, what Stephen is doing is in the moment where he's being stoned to death, he's not saying, I got to forgive, I got to forgive. He's looking, he's looking up and he's saying, I need you, Lord Jesus. You're my God. He's looking and suddenly Jesus appears and he sees the risen Lord. It's that looking and it's from that flows out, Father, forgive them. Do you see, the problem is we tend to think that it's all about our efforts and saying we have these commands, the law, and I need to do all these things to be a Christian. But actually, we need to look up. We need to surrender. We need to say, Lord, I trust you. We need to tremble at the cross. We need to say, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We need to come before him and surrender our hearts to him and say, Lord, if you should save me in such a way, why? Why? Why should you do that for me? but I'm so thankful you have. And from that flows forgiveness. Your tongue changes and you want to 
sing praises rather than cursing. Suddenly, the, the desire for alcohol and alcoholism slowly starts dissipating. The, the power of lust becomes broken because you're more stunned by the risen Lord than by any image on any screen. But we have to go back to Christ again and again. We have to tremble. Let's pray. Father, I want to acknowledge with everyone who is watching and those who are here that I don't come enough to the cross of Christ. It is so easy to bypass you, Lord Jesus, to move very quickly by the cross and then just to go and do what I need to do every morning to forget, Jesus, that you have given everything and instead turn on my phone look at my emails, and try to get through the day? And is it any wonder why anxiety starts flowing? Why deceptions creep up? Why we can feel so joyless and weary? We've forgotten the cross. We've forgotten. We've become fools. All of us. We are no different than the foolish Galatians. We started with the Spirit, but we somehow, due to our own deceptions and the enemy's lies and his bewitchings, we start thinking that, no, we don't need Christ. We can do it ourselves. Forgive us, O oh Lord, for believing such a lie and help us to see there is no one like you Help us to tremble at that cross, O oh Lord. Help us to tremble. We worship you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.